Hi everyone, and welcome to Philosophy Rekindled with our focus book, the 1920 published version of Tertium Organum by P.D. Spensky. Today we are discussing Chapter 19. This is Part 1. You will find the audio version of this chapter as an additional audio to this podcast, and you'll also find additional information on our website, philosophyrekindled.com. Today my guest is Peter Lancet, hypnotherapist, author and classic scholar. And I'm Alice Flanagan, fiction author, computer programmer and podcaster. Thanks so much for joining us and welcome Pete. So Pete, Chapter 19, we are really getting through this book and I know you've been looking forward to Chapter 19. So we start with Spensky telling us that you're giving us a bit of a promise and that promise is to look at which path of knowledge leads to intuition in the shortest time. And I think uh, he, he dives straight into straight into the the answer to this you know the first few pages but but leads us um you know through through the various paths that that we can choose to get to this you know sort of nirvana of of intuition so the first one is the emotional path and he says it leads to super personal knowledge and intuition and i'm going to ask you when we get to it what does he mean by super personal but but i think what he means is that it's you know pertaining to us but he says the key point, read the emotional path, is the purity of the emotion and interestingly, the removal of materialistic elements of possession and the fear of loss. And I also liked that last bit, the removal of the material uh, elements, possession and fear of loss. Because I hadn't sort of thought about it much before, but I think that they are the ones that muddy the water. Well, that those people that I usually spend a, a sneering, contemptuous time traducing in these podcasts. Which particular ones? Which well, I was going to say ones? there are several groups. <laughs> but these, these, yes. these are the Facebook New Age uh, gurus, uh, you know, these like 25-year-old, oh. young, very hot young women who try to tell you how to live your life uh, and, and want to charge you money for it, by the way, or the ones that share smug little memes. They now use um, the word attachment. You've got to get mo- you've got to get rid of attachment before you can be spiritually aware and ascend. Well, guess what? Aspensky was telling you this right here a long time ago. You're not giving us anything new. You're very beautiful to look at on Facebook, but you annoy me so much that it ruins all the beauty of you. Um, so yeah, this is talking about attachment and the release of attachment. Fear of loss is the the basis of attachment mm. so that's what he's talking possession about possession and fear of loss mm. so if you think if you think that you already possess something and i'm very careful with my words if you think that you possess something and you become afraid of losing it that colors your entire emotional and probably physical life as well um when he talks about getting rid of that um possession that sense of possession and the fear of loss of what you think you possess, he says that that must lead to super personal knowledge and to intuition. What he means by super personal, what do we think is personal knowledge? Oh, I know what my name is. Um, I know that, uh, I, uh, oh, I suppose I can't say these days that I know what gender I am because God, we're not supposed to. Ha- yes, um, you can. I know I, I can. I, I'm just, I'm to. I'm taking the mickey out of the new stupid way of, 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 of the way we're supposed to live, you know, where everything's... I'm going to start identifying as a table, I think, or a guitar or something. I, I'm, 
we don't really want to i wish i hadn't brought it up but i did because uh, it gets on my nerves but you can you you know it's what you think you are this is personal knowledge what you think you are mm. i think i'm five foot ten yeah. i think i'm this that and the other um uh i i i think i'm you know I'm good looking. I, whatever it is, this is personal knowledge. This is knowledge that we think it is. Super personal knowledge is, goes to the heart of it, though, to the cause, the essence of who you are. And this is the stuff that when you meditate and you can strip away these things, you get to this core knowledge. So super personal means it's beyond the the mundane personal. This is mm, this is taking okay. a look at this is taking a look at ourselves from a perspective that we don't normally do. Normally we live positivistic lives, believing only in the material, blah, 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 blah. And you know, we've been there a million times, so I don't have to go through it all again. But that's what we normally think of uh, and, and who we are amidst all of this material existence. That's the personal that we normally have. Super personal goes beyond that. Well, hang on, there's more to life than this. Let's start looking. And when you start asking that question, that becomes super personal. If you, what Ospensky's saying is, if you manage to divest yourself of what you believe you possess and, and you uh, divest yourself of the fear of losing what you think you possess, you inevitably are left with something that's way beyond you in the material world. This is what he clearly means by superpersonal knowledge and those ideas. And remember, when he says possession, he should he should actually have qualified that and said it's what you think you possess. Because do you possess anything? That's one of the things that once you realise it, it does it does mm. eliminate the fear of loss. Mm. So anyway, there yeah. you go. So Spinsky then asks, but how can the intellectual path lead to intuition? So he's he's starting to starting with. Is that what he says in yours? Path. Is that what he says in your book? Yes. He doesn't it say does, that in mine. Yes. He doesn't say that in mine. Oh, okay. What does he say? He says, "How can the intellectual path lead to the new forms of knowledge?" And that makes more sense. I, I, I love the way he's edited this book in this, you know, the couple of years later for that second edition because that makes more sense. You know, the intellectual path. Um, leading to intuition. Intuition is knowledge. Intuition in, in this chapter is that pure knowledge, that knowledge of the, you know, not, not knowledge in terms of um, what we think we know, but the, the true, true essence of, of knowledge. So, yeah, I like Because, it, because it's not coloured by all of the um, positivistic ideas that normally surround us, like possession and fear of loss. Intuition isn't coloured by those. That's why it's pure. But we will get to that, won't we? We because, will get to that. Because in my book, he goes and says, the new knowledge is direct knowledge by an inner sense. And, and then he gives this little example. I feel my own pain directly. The new knowledge can give me the power to sense, as mine, the pain of someone else. In other words, he's talking about empathy. This connection, this, this idea that's, that certain people can and do whether you know willingly or consciously or unconsciously they put themselves in someone else's shoes and they're able to walk a mile in those shoes and feel what that other person's feeling it's the big the big thing amongst those people who i uh, sneering and i was sneering and contemptuous about just a, a few minutes ago 
they do this all the have you noticed how how many of them are all empath oh, we're all empaths now it seems to me that everybody in the world is an empath it is one of the virtue signals of the new age to be an empath mm. uh, well fine great keep virtue signaling but this is what Spensky is talking about when Spensky in the, these this couple of sentences and in that example um he's talking about empathy the the ability to empathize with someone else and he says that he's claiming that you can't truly do that from a positivistic materialistic point of view you have to let go of those things that tie you to the positivistic world i.e the belief in possession and the fear of loss of what you believe you possess some of the things that you can possess by the way are abstract they are how you f see yourself, how you perceive yourself in this positivistic world. Oh, everybody loves me. Everybody thinks I'm this. Everybody thinks I'm that. And that's how they see me. You can mm. lose that. You need to lose that too, is something that Uspensky means. So I've got a sentence in here that you didn't read out, and I wonder if you've got it. Just It was before the last sentence you read, and it says, we realise that we all know intellectually, we know either subjectively or objectively. Subjectively as part of ourselves, objectively as part of that which is not ourselves. No, it's not there. Um, does it really matter? Well, I'll tell you why. Because in my book, in the next page, then we start going into this subjective knowledge and objective knowledge, and that kind of frames what is you know where he's at when he talks about subjective and objective well, i think well i think he's i think he's dead right to lose that i mean in, in this he doesn't do that he talks only of objective knowledge and he's made it a lot more concise you know i think that he has understood that that that's an irrelevance we only need to talk about the objective side of it here and actually break that down. It's implied right. okay. by any any right-thinking person. Once you break down the objective um, aspect of how we believe, um, once you've broken that down, we're left with only one thing, the subjective. He doesn't need to explain the difference between the two. I think he's done a great job of editing that down and making it a little more concise. Mm, fair enough. Yeah, I mean, fair enough. I was just curious to see if he had it in there. Yeah. No, he, he no, he doesn't. He's actually ripped it straight out. Okay, so because I I actually feel I mean I don't I don't know about you know the you've got that very first version that was ever published and you've gone back to that one, mm. but this version that I've got, by the way, which was the only one available when I bought it, uh, I didn't have a choice of original or edited, and I thought this was the yeah. original. So, but this this thing. Um, I find as it's going on, it it really is getting more and more concise in, in the way that it explains things. He's really, he's yeah, he's really, he's really given it the, the edit that we all thought at the beginning. He should have been giving you know part of that beginning chapters. Maybe, maybe so. Well, he's sprinting for the finishing line, isn't he? I mean, he is sprinting yeah. for the finishing line now. So he's like, you know, bam, 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 bam. Let's go. It's. I think it's really good. I think he's he's done it. So he's bringing back into the into the chapter science and and how science uh, takes a point of view of we're going to explain everything to you in this objective manner and if we don't know it now we will know it all we need to do is get more refined uh, measuring or instruments that can can um, measure things to explain them so if, you know don't worry about 
the fact that we can't tell you now we can using this methodology. So he's, he's revisiting that. He's only doing it so that he can strip it down. He's going he's gonna to destroy it. This yes, exactly he right, which he does He does in a very, I think oh, he does very well. well I do too. Book. I do. He does, in my, he, he does in mine. I'm sure some of the words are the same. Yes. His main point is that science and philosophy obtain objective knowledge and see sub subjective knowledge as unsubstantiated. So uh, they, um, if they can't measure it, it, it doesn't exist, basically. If they can't explain it using an objective way, that knowledge is made up, doesn't, doesn't really exist, you're imagining it. And he says, science studies phenomena and thus objective knowledge, but the noumena is unknown and a number of unknown facts in science is fast becoming greater. So he's saying that as science has progressed, it's this, this little list of, oh, we don't know anything about that is getting bigger and bigger to the point where it'll get to a point where what they don't know is greater than what they do know. Like so, so they're really like the snake swallowing its own tail. They just, they just haven't, um, you know. Yeah, he, it he does. I mean, he he does mention though that we are in a position. This is why he has to do this chapter. This chapter is so important, and he does explain why because science has managed to put itself at the top of the tree. In other words, everybody out there believes. That if it has, if something hasn't been discovered through the positivistic scientific method objectively, then it can't be proven or it can't be true. And that everything that science tells it is proven and true, even when it isn't. And now he's going to strip it down, as you say, um, this idea of studying phenomena. And just as soon as it attempts to discover causes, it's confronted with the wall of the unknown and, to it, unknowable. So... Is this unknowable knowledge absolutely unknowable or is it only for the methods of science? Yes, the methods of science leave it unknowable, but the methods of science aren't the only ones. And this is the, this is the clear path that he's telling us. Um, stop being programmed into believing it. And I, I think he's got a really valid point because he's, as he has made all the way through the book, science is, is trying to explain the noumena by way of phenomena. So it's basically looking at the the, uh, the movie on the screen and thinking that's that's what it needs to measure and ignoring the projector, the actual cause of the image on the screen, and uh, so it can never really know the the knowable. It it but it has set itself up as you say as the font of all knowledge, and you know if we can't explain it, it's just not real. It doesn't exist. The the real question there is how did that come to be the case? How did it come to be that all of humanity got trapped into this idea that science, ah. we, we, we have to worship the new religion of science? Well, Aspetsky addresses that quite well, and I, I know love he does. what he has to I say. I know he does, because he tells people, he says yes. that we're hypnotised into it. Yeah, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, I want to read it. With, yeah, but which one of us is the hypnotist? This is my this is my area. <laughs> oh, it's your big. Oh, go on. Would you no, no, like no, to you, read? No, you do I... it now, now that I got that one out. You, <laughs> just, you, you tell us what you want to say. <laughs> I didn't want to go too far okay. ahead. No, I'm, I didn't no, I'm leading ahead. up to I, it. Let, let me lead, yeah. let lead, me lead up, up to it. it. Okay. Lead on, Macduff. He says, in every department, science itself is beginning to repudiate its own foundations. A little more, and science... In its entirety, he will ask, where am I? And then he says, positive thinking, 
which conceived of its own problem as the deducing of general conclusions from the findings of each separate science and all of them combined, will feel itself compelled to deduce conclusions from which science does not know. Then all the world will see before it the Colossus with feet of clay, or rather without any feet at all, but with a formidable misty body hanging in the air. I've got a great example because I can tell you exactly how, how you can see that works right now in the world around you. Do you believe in the Big Bang? If somebody says the Big Bang, going back to the Big Bang, yes, 99.99999% recurring of people that can read and write and hear in the world will, will understand what you mean. If you say black hole, same amount of people will think that they know what that is. What nobody seems to understand is that, first of all, the, the idea of the Big Bang and what it's predicated on is now proven to be untrue. And the second part is that cosmology which came up with the Big Bang, which is Penrose and, and Stephen Hawking. Um, the, big, uh, the, the black hole, rather, the black hole only exists to fill a gap of unknowable cosmology. It is unknowable. There is huge gaps in the mathematics of cosmology. And I mean massive, unknowable, unfillable holes. So they have to invent fanciful things to fill it. Now, Stephen Hawking and Roger Penrose were very, very elegant mathematicians. And they elegantly created a structure that linked one side of the mathematics to another side of the mathematics, which the cosmologists felt were, were given, were proven, but they couldn't link them together. And without that linkage, without that linkage, the things that they thought were proven couldn't be proven. So in comes the cosmologists with the elegant solution. Well, to make this equation link with that equation, we need this equation. And they come up with this equation. Well, how do we define the equation that links them? There must be a black hole, something that sucks in everything. Even light can't escape from it. It's a nonsense. It's just somebody's way of connecting two other pieces of nonsensical mathematics. And yet, and yet, everyone is convinced that it's true because these are the cleverest people on earth. They're clever, at, they're clever at creating elegant mathematical solutions. I call them idiot savants. I know that that's not a politically correct term these days. But people will believe in it. This is the, the, the crucial point is not the mathematics. The crucial point is that everybody believes them. Everybody thinks that it's a given that there are black holes, that it's a given that there was a Big Bang. It isn't in either of those cases. And many other fanciful ones. The more fanciful ones are things like dark matter. Oh my God, don't get me started. And, and even worse, dark energy. The more they think they know, the more they find holes. This is exactly what Uspensky is saying. And the reason I wanted to talk about cosmology is it's the perfect example of the more you, the more little calculations you do, the more you realize it doesn't fit. There's something else that we're missing. And then you come up with fanciful ones because you don't want the world to realise that you don't actually know anything at all. And that's what cosmology yeah. is. A lot of pseudo-clever people terrified that the rest of the world will pull back the curtain like in The Wizard of Oz and just see some stupid rambling old git behind the curtain 
Mm. running running your perceptions of the universe they're terrified so they come up with fanciful solutions that the rest of the world can't understand you ever seen those blackboards full of uh, mathematical equations that cosmologists do um, well let me tell you how many people in the world can understand what the hell that is none so they can put anything on that blackboard and tell you anything and because you've been sold on the idea that they're the cleverest people on earth you just go along with it like you're in a trance, which, by the way, you are at that point. He, Uspensky, puts everything I've just said into those few sentences. I think it's the most beautiful thing that he wrote in this whole book. I, I really do. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he really nails it there. And I think the next sentence, the next parallel sentence, well, uh, yeah. really um, crystallises it, well, it did for me. He said, for a long time, philosophy has realised the lack of feet of this colossus, but the majority of cultivated mankind is still hypnotised by positivism, which sees something in place of those feet. However, it will be necessary to part company with this illusion very soon. So he's saying, we, we want to believe it. We're hypnotised that it has to be right. So we, even if they don't have the explanation, just like you said, oh, well, yeah, black hole, must be that. No idea what that is, but it, we are putting those feet on the Colossus because we're hypnotised that they are the font of all knowledge. I'll tell you how I can prove that it's, that it's hypnosis too. If you put the the absolute irrefutable evidence in front of people, and I'll use um, the Big Bang because it's the easiest one to refute. Uh, you don't actually need mathematical models to do this. You've got the Hubble Telescope doing it for you, which, by the way, is a, a beautiful, dramatic irony in life that the Hubble Telescope does this. Edwin Hubble discovered what he something that he has now uh, come to be known as redshift. Doppler redshift. And it's the idea that objects in the universe, as they accelerate further away from us, they we see more of the red spectrum of frequency. The red, In other words, the redder they get. The further away as they're accelerating away from us in the cosmos, the redder they get. And that means, okay, that if, if everything in the universe is accelerating away from everything else in the universe, there must have been a starting point for everything. And that starting point for everything has to have been some minuscule dot that contains all the matter that we see now. So in other words, there's this point which is so dense that somehow it becomes unstable and it explodes, boom, and, and everything is now moving away from, from everything else at this incredible rate of knots. But we can... From that, extrapolate a timeline back down to where everything started in the same point at the same time. That's the Big Bang theory. And it's all based on Edwin Hubble discovering the, this idea of redshift. And Edwin Hubble origin, you know, originally says, well, I'm noticing that these objects further away from us seem to be red. Cosmologists jumped on this bandwagon. Edwin Hubble saying, hang on, hang on, don't, don't interpret it that way. But they did. And suddenly we get this theory of the Big They couldn't wait to give us the theory of the Big Bang. Oh, we must have all started out as this little point, and boom, that's the beginning of the universe. Right. So, later in life, Edwin Hubble, before he died, said he was appalled at this idea that they'd used his discovery without any basis in truth whatsoever, 
and and got the world to believe in this big bang to become a thing and he was horrified that his legacy would be that he's the person that discovered the big bang and he said it's just not true we don't actually know what this red shift is yet we don't know why things seem to be getting redder further away so anyway move on a few years quite a few years and before you know it we've launched the hubble telescope the first thing we did was realize that the the lenses and the mirrors were buggered and contaminated so we had to go up and fix it with the space shuttle but when we fixed it it started sending back information some of the images that we we get back on all levels from from x-ray um, photography and so on they're showing us objects with a red shift in front of objects that sh they shouldn't be in front of. In other words, their redshift is so pronounced that they should be way behind the object that are behind them. Oh, and the objects nice. behind and the objects behind them are so dense that we shouldn't be able to see the object with the redshift. In other words, objects with redshift um, so so dense that they should be way beyond objects with a lesser redshift aren't. So redshift on which the whole idea of the Big Bang is predicated isn't what they said it was. So, does that mean there wasn't a Big Bang? No, we can't prove that there wasn't one, but it certainly means that it's bloody unlikely, and it certainly isn't a Big Bang because of redshift. Redshift does not demonstrate that there was a Big Bang. So, and that, yet, that's just, that's just will say... there's a bit, you know, they will just accept it. If somebody tells them, or if yeah. it's in the papers, or if they're talking, uh, oh, yes, yeah, it's, it's like going back to the Big Bang. They use it now. It's become a figure of speech. It's become part of our conversation. And it shouldn't have been. It's ridiculous. Um, prove it. Just prove it. Once you can prove it, then I'll take it. And they haven't proved it. That's the Are thing. They... A lot of these things aren't proved. They're theory or a hypothesis. But then, you know, science put it forward. The theory of relativity is the best one. And whenever you see theory, stop looking at the phrase and actually analyze the words in the in the phrase. The theory of relativity. I've got news for everybody out there who thinks, ooh, it's the cleverest thing on earth. Um, it's still a theory. It's unproven. Einstein, to his death, rather like Edwin Hubble, was appalled. And I, I can't stress this enough. He was appalled that it was being taken as true. He knew and constantly came out and said, it doesn't actually work. There are flaws in the mathematics. It doesn't work. The more we, the more we actually prove of it, the more we realize we don't know. Is this not exactly what Uspensky is saying here? And Uspensky is a mathematician too, bear in mind. We, we should never forget that. Um, so he's, he, yeah, he is dealing with these these precise models that nobody else can understand. But once it once it goes out into the conscious, oh, the cleverest people have found this. Whether they found it or not doesn't matter. The mass of people are instantly hypnotized into believing that the cleverest people on earth say it, so it must be true. Plenty of times, the cleverest people of earth are fake. <laughs> anyway, I love the way he distances mathematics from these people. Yeah. Um, in the next paragraph, mathematics lying at the very foundation of positive knowledge and to which exact science always pointed with pride as to its subject and vassal is in reality now denying all positivism and establishing idealism. 
Mathematics was included in the cycle of positive sciences only by mistake. And soon, indeed, mathematics will become the principal weapon against positivism. And he's distancing himself from the people that he feels are fake. Well, yeah. Um, the fact, the fact of the matter is, though, um, whether it was true in his day, I, I, I don't know. Um, but it did come. There are people now working at the absolute cutting edge um, of certainly. Um, quantum mechanics by the way people think that cosmology and quantum mechanics are the same thing because they all involve blackboards full of squiggles that nobody understands well they're not they're different there are different avenues and paths that each of them take and hopefully they'll unify all theories won't they this is the big hope that they'll they'll create unicorns that link all of the theories i say unicorns because that's just as fanciful as a black hole or or dark energy or whatever but they um, you know they are they are kind of different, and the but there are the point is that the people on the absolute leading razor's edge of of this research, mathematical research who are coming out and their voices are being squashed when they say, well, actually, we 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 actually don't know anything because what we thought we knew, we now the more we get into it, the more we're discovering we know nothing because um, what we what we thought and took for granted. As being a foundation of our the, the the area of research that the path of research that we're going down, it soon proves that uh, we've started from the wrong place. <laughs> it's like the foundation didn't exist, so we've got to go back and try to find that. Which is why you get these paradoxical things. And by the way, this isn't even new, and yet people um, people will hear this um, those that do, uh, and just dismiss it. Oh wow, it's that isn't that incredible. And then move on and, and watch the television or whatever it is they do. Um, but this idea that that in the in the world in the quantum world that something is affected by you looking at it, in other words, the viewer affects what, what, what is being seen, I don't think that's something we can take lightly. At some levels, what we think is a particle actually describes itself to our perception as a wave. And the moment we start looking at it as a wave, suddenly we see a particle. And that's mathematically. When I say see, not with our eyes, with the mathematics as well. So it's like the feet of clay, as Uspensky points out, are now crumbling. But those people on that leading edge that said the foundation of everything that you believe uh, you shouldn't do, it doesn't get heard, does it? That does not get heard. People have bought into the black hole. They've bought into the Big Bang. They've bought in, some of them, to dark energy and dark matter. Most people don't have never even heard of those, but virtually everybody's heard of the Big Bang and of black holes. Disney even made a movie called The Black Hole to really cement that hypnotism into the psyche. The black hole. Yeah. Not proven. Doesn't exist. And it's... um. And and to keep the illusion going, I, I like what he says here, you know, because even when something comes out that, that doesn't make sense or now, you know, that theory doesn't hold water because of other things that have come in, mm -hmm. science kind of has this little caveat and Spensky points out that, that science denies the existence of the hidden side of life. He said, it's you know, there is no hidden side of life. We know everything. And we are going to reveal it to you gradually, you know, like they're doing this gradual reveal of the unhidden. So, you know, wait for it, wait for it. If you don't know, that doesn't make sense now. 
will explain it to you in time. Yeah. So it's kind of like leaving everybody sitting there waiting for the next instalment. Well, they, he says that they have this fake promise, don't they? We don't know it now, yeah. but it but it will be known. Just wait. Yeah. It's like jam. To, it's like jam tomorrow. There'll always be jam yeah, tomorrow. Yeah, and so it keeps that hip, hypnosis in place. It's like, oh, well, we thought we had them there, but no, they they they've got to they they'll they'll give us something to explain that later on. You know, we we just we we the the great um, illiterate in science terms will will be educated in time. And I think that's the thing. It's 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 like a, a all mirrors. Um, yeah, it is. But uh, yeah, and and Spensky's point as he goes further the next next uh, couple of paragraphs is you know science is objective objective knowledge and is limited to the study of phenomena. Um, it can tell you the chemical composition of something. It can tell you how your eyes work and your body works. It can it it can tell you how things work. But it can't tell you what the man next to you is thinking, and it can't um, measure a concept. It can't. There, there are so many things that it can't do that it just sort of brushes aside, and uh, and and no one sort of seems to 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 notice that. I've never thought. Oh well, science can't can't um, tell me what someone's thinking. Surely there's some piece of equipment that could tell you what I was thinking, and there is no such thing. This is a beautiful quote. Um, I'm not I'm not given to reading the book, but I love this. And I think <laughs> there are multitudes of problems the solving of which science has not even attempted. Problems in the presence of which the contemporary scientist armed with all his science, is as helpless as a savage or a four-year-old child. And what even happened to the woman? What even happened to the... <laughs> to the I know, the simple woman. The, uh, the simple, the simple, simple woman. woman. What happened to the she, simple woman? <laughs> simple women just, sim just can't be armed with all the science, can they? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> and what happened to the... To the um, Cunning savage was it the cunning savage? This, the, no, uh, this this is this is this is just a standard savage, just just your ordinary common or garden savage. Yeah, you run. I like mill. how it, I like <laughs> how it's a four year old child because clearly at the age of five, a five year old should be able to see through all this rubbish. <laughs> Look, I'll let you in on a secret. They probably can. <laughs> they probably <laughs> can because they, them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They just they 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 live as though this drivel didn't exist, don't they? At that age. They so, do. You know, that, that does work. Yeah, exactly right. Look, Spensky does make me laugh because he, he obviously has, I, I think he has a bit of wit, but I, in these particular things, I don't think he's he's being witty. I think he's actually... I think he's telling it like it is. Yeah, it's funny. I, I do as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so after that, he says, such are the problems of life and death, the problems of space and time, the mystery of consciousness, etc., etc. These are the problems he's saying they haven't even attempted. Yeah, except that they have, haven't they? Um, not, you know, life and death, yeah, they're looking into it. Look, they've been looking into the problems of life and death since, well, let's put it this way. If they hadn't been, you would never have had Mary Shelley writing Frankenstein for a start. And that's just one example. So I do think he's wrong here. This is why I wanted to stop. Um, the problems of space and time. What the hell did he think relativity was? And what and all this thing, relativity virtually on the day it was published changed cosmology from 
looking at what we observe in the universe around us to mathematical squiggles on a board. It literally changed overnight. So yeah, oh, believe me, they've been looking into the space-time continuum since relativity in general, special relativity in general relativity. They have. They, and is Pensky But have they solved that? it? He doesn't say solve it. Hang on. No, no, no. That's not what he's saying here. Otherwise, I wouldn't have brought this up. He's saying that there are problems that they haven't even attempted. That's not saying that they haven't solved it. He says they haven't even attempted problems in the presence of which the contemporary scientists... And by the way, what what does fall true is what we were just discussing, that the... The, sci- the contemporary scientist, armed with all of his science, is as helpless as a savage or a four-year-old child. Because that's where we are in cosmology and that's where we are in quantum mechanics. As we explore causes, space and time in those two areas. We know nothing and the more we investigate, the less we know. If they are honest, there are honest mathematicians, there are honest cosmologists. But the most of them are not. The most of them love the population of the world, believing in Big Bang, believing in dark matter and dark energy. These fanciful notions, they love it because it makes them seem all the cleverer. Uh, and, they, and it does. Mm. But there are, there are honest mathematicians and there are honest cosmologists. Their voices don't get heard very much. That's the thing because as, as we've explained before, you know, if, if everything is built up over here and people have got their ivory towers of you know i'm the the person who knows all about this and i'm telling you how it is and then someone comes along and says oh that's not right well then they're going to start throwing rocks at them from their ivory tower aren't they well, and actually, <laughs> that's going what to throw me yeah exactly right so so any I mean, new thinking doesn't get a chance <laughs> science should be this idea that we accept an idea and we run with it right up until the point where somebody demonstrates that that was wrong and we should now look at it this way, you know, through investigation and study. But it doesn't. People will research and they'll say, hang on, everything we thought about X, Y, Z was wrong. And as you rightly say, instead of somebody print, printing a paper and saying, we've got to look at it all a different way from now on, that's not what happens. The accepted leaders of that field will destroy it. They will throw it. They will throw it to the walls. Um, for example, mm. the, God knows I keep mentioning him, but the work of Velikovsky, probably one of the smartest people that that's lived in the modern world. This, we're talking about Leonardo da Vinci style uh, sort of um, smartness here. This this guy and Einstein was his, was his closest friend. They were both at Princeton, and Einstein was going to use his own name to promote Velikovsky. How fortunate for the world of science that Einstein suddenly died. And Velikovsky's book, World in Collision, Worlds in Collision, with his annotated notes about how they were going to present it together, was on Einstein's desk at, at, when he died. So, look, you know, do you believe in coincidence? I'm sure I don't, but there you go. Einstein was going to use his name that that even the, sci- the scientific world would remember, put Einstein on a pedestal, even though it's still only a theory of relativity. So his name alone would have brought Velikovsky's um, work into the mainstream. Mm. People would have had to start looking at it, and it never happened. Ooh, how convenient. But they do. 
from that ivory tower, they, they destroy anything that challenges their position. Remember, if you spent um, 30 years in one area of research, God help you, what a miserable life. You might as well be an accountant. Uh, but if you had spent all that time and you were your ego, there you were, a professor of something at the department of blah, blah, blah in the University of Blair, um suddenly, if something new comes along, that completely breaks down everything that you built your 30-year career on, you are left at the end of this glorious career that you've had no better than a savage or a four-year-old child. That's where it leaves you. This, this is why the ego protects the, what, the status quo. There's more to it than that. It's been programmed to do that too. But we don't need to go into that. We're discussing Velikovsky. But this is why you get no honesty. You get no truth in positivism. And, and Uspensky in this chapter is pointing this out. You will never get these people to accept no. new knowledge. Well, positivism is stuck in exact. Yeah, go on. Sorry. Yeah, it is the next bit. Keep going. Yeah, the next paragraph. Well, next sentence, I should say. We all know this, and the only thing we can do is try not to think about the existence of these problems, to forget about them. We do so as a rule, but this does not annihilate them. No, it doesn't. The yes, problems the are still there just because we are refusing yes. to look yes. at them. <laughs> if, it, if there's an elephant in the room and we refuse to look at it, the elephant is still in that room. And he's still there. Exactly right. And, you know, it's interesting because Spensky knows this is 100 years ago. Yeah. And nothing has changed. Not a jot of it has changed. If anything, it's got worse. He further goes on to 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 reiterate that you know yes, science can science has its place. It can measure the composition of stars and you know tell you how the body works and it can build machinery that can annihilate a thousand lives at a time. You know bombs and whatever, but it cannot tell you what the man next door to us is thinking. And he says, no matter how much we weigh sound or photograph a man we shall never know his thoughts at a given moment unless he himself tells them to us but this is truly quite a different method when he says this is truly quite a different method in my book that's all in uppercase it's like pay attention it is yeah, yes is it in yours yes. as well so yeah. what do you think is, yeah it is in mine as well and he italicizes unless he himself tells them to us yeah that's what yeah um, i've got that well. so this is important basically um, yeah, but what he's saying is that positivistic science doesn't even ask that question. How can we tell what somebody's thinking? Because that other person, the man standing behind us, is having thoughts. Therefore, you know, that is a thing. Because it's a thing, it's a concept, we ought to be able to investigate it. But they, they flat, positivist, positivistic science flounders to the point where what it'll say is, do you know what? We won't even bother. Because that's too hard, basket. Yeah. Our our method of discovery that we th that we are telling the world is the only method has no tools to deal with that. There is no starting point to deal with that, and they re and they they won't even look for the tools. They just dismiss that yeah. as a question. So basically, there's a very limited as limited idea of what they can actually investigate. Yeah, yeah. Their their methodology is limited to a three-dimensional uh, time-space quantities to be measured kind of realm. Anything outside of that, science is just, don't care about it. It's not important. He, he, 
Here's, here's, here's a beautiful kicker, a, a nice little rider to that. At the area of um, cosmology and quantum mechanics and so on, people are working with the idea that there are multiple dimensions, not just the third, you know, and so on. It has been, since before Ispensky's time, they did. But what they don't do is accept that if there are multiple dimensions in existence, that there is likely to be an impact of those dimensions on this dimension. So if we only look at, um, if we only say that we have certain knowledge based on investigations into the third dimension, the best we can do is say that we have certain knowledge of the perceptions of the third dimension, not of everything. So cosmology, yeah. cosmology based on that alone is as fake as hell. Actually, hell isn't probably fake, but there you go. I find I find living amongst <laughs> these people hell. Hell hell is subjective though. Hell is subjective. <laughs> well, Spencer is going to agree with you one hundred percent. He says the sphere of action of the method of exact science is strictly limited. This sphere is the world of the objective. In yeah. the world of the subjective, exact science has never, in italics, penetrated and will never penetrate. So it. it we will never enter into anything other than the uh, three-dimensional time, motion, senses, how we perceive things, job yeah, done. Uh, and that's, that's, all and that's exactly do. right. That is, that is exactly how it sees it. The point that uh, I've, I've bolded here is the expansion of objective knowledge at the expense of subjective is impossible. And Spensky's already noted in the chapter that anything that uh, is objective is has a, has an underlying basis of subjective because the objective is only looking at the impressions that a subjective something has has given yeah, us, like, like it's our perception of it. Yeah, basically, if you and I look at the same thing, I can't know what it is that you see, and more important, what you feel upon looking at that object and you can't either way there are some common grounds i'm looking at a little statue of a, a meditating buddha that's on a bookcase in my therapy center here right now you could be looking at that same thing we both agree that it was sort of dirty gold in color we, we would agree that we could probably agree that it's of a certain height and so on there are aspects that i don't get that you'll get how does that Buddha look in relation to the objects around it? Does it give you a sense of feeling of greatness? Or is it just a, a, a little statue representing something else? Does the very concept of Buddhism and, and the, the spirituality of the Buddhist um, teaching uh, have an effect on you? I, we can't. We wouldn't know. We will get a different perception of that same little statue, even though we're both looking at the same thing, from the same room, even if you were sitting next to me and we were both looking at it, we get different perceptions. Mm. This this is what he means by the subject, We, you know, that they all start subjectively. If you're a scientist and you want to invest, let's say you were a botanist and you saw this this exotic plant, in, in, you know, that's been brought back from some jungle somewhere, stolen probably from a savage, and you were supposed to laugh at that bit. <laughs> Sorry, I was just thinking... That wasn't a very cunning savage because they didn't manage to keep it. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, but we have guns. They'd only got spears. We'd got guns. So we stole this. Let's say it's a rare orchid. 
something has to impel you as the botanist to look at that particular plant and say, I want to study that. I want to see what makes it tick. What's it, what's it all about? There has to be something subjective about you and your relationship and perception of the object that makes you want to deal with that. And that's what he's talking about here. Objective science doesn't do that. You're 100% right. And I've got a little example of that sort of thing, talking about botany. Um, at the end of my garden, as you know, there's this um, lake and a lot of bush and uh, trails through and a kangaroo. It, so. And lots of Skippy. kangaroos. <laughs> You've got Skippy, Skippy down there. <laughs> lots of them and uh, lots of birds, you know, the whole thing. But, but originally that was a quarry and okay. they uh, uh, flooded the quarry with the, the river, but all the bush around wasn't originally bush and so what's grown up is a lot of weeds i mean the birds are as happy as can be in these what we would call um uh, not true native australian fauna they're, they're they're as happy as can be anyway so a lot of it it's nice it's, it's lovely but um if you're a purist you'd say well they're, they're weeds yeah anyway the thing is yeah. um the guys come through with their whippersnippers and they uh, clear the edges so that the paths are, you know, walkable. And um, I talked to quite a few people as we go walking in there. And one particular guy, George, he said to me, have you seen the fern? And I said, what fern? So this is now a native Australian fern has, has come up in amongst all these weeds. and uh, But it's right where the whippersnippers will, will come along and they're just going to whippersnipper right out. And so we're looking at this fern and going, wow, this, this is beautiful. So our perception of it is, wow, something is regenerating here. And the guys that are going to come along with their whippersnippers are going to see that as just something in the path to clear out so that people can walk along the path. And so it's the same fern and they're not seeing what we see. Um, but I will point out that we've put a, we've put a little uh, wire cage around it and staked it in so that they can't do that. <laughs> that's, that's an aside. But, uh, but yeah, that's perception, well, that's really isn't cool. it? Yeah, it is. Mm, yes. Completely. It's... Absolutely. One man's weed is another man's medicine. Yeah, or, or not even noticing that's... like that that is, that is something that's coming up that's growing. It's just in the way. Gone. Yeah, but remember, their job is not to notice. Their job is to get rid of everything that's in the way. Yeah. It doesn't make them any less of a person from ha for having that perception. No, not at, the, not at the, all. The, that perception is what puts a roof over their family's head and food on their children's table. Oh, yeah, and makes it makes the path that we can walk along. Um, I guess the thing is, mm. when you look at it and say, okay, well, that is something we want to keep. You suddenly see amongst all the weeds something that that to me and George was important was important to not mow down and um you know so I guess that we we perceive that plant differently to maybe what it would have been perceived as um by people who have a different different role well it's it's, it's like the beginning of the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy when the earth is about to be destroyed to make way for an interstellar oh, bypass yeah. So <laughs> Prostetnik Vogon Jeltz has a totally different perception of the Earth than Arthur Dent has, and Ford Prefect onto that, of the Earth. Uh, um, so, you know, this, this, and this is the truth of it. And so how can you objectively look at, a, at anything when you're coming at it originally from a subjective perception of why you want yeah. to do it and what it is to start with. We have a perception of what it is to start with, and that will always colour 
um, the way that we investigate it. And further to that, you know, Spensky says, you know, could science take a single step in the direction of acknowledging the subjective side of things? Um, you know, were it to explain something subjective in terms of the objective, then it might admit that it could take two, three, ten, and ten thousand steps. So it's it's like if it could start understanding that it it actually cannot explain things the way it is its methodology as it is. If it realised, no. if it if it stopped and admitted that, then it could change its methodology. Well, what science is attempting to do all the time is to make your subjective perce um, perception of everything their perception of it. It's yeah, it, is, right it is absolutely denying you the right or the ability to actually look at something from your point of view. That's what science does. And anybody that defends science and wants to defend science really need to take a look at that aspect of science first. The great advances um, in science that, that positives, positivists will claim have like enriched and improved the lives of, uh, of humanity and so on, um, how much better would they be if science was honest? Nobody, nobody mm. mentions that either. But science isn't honest. Science is self-serving and grasping. And it doesn't serve humanity barely at all, if ever. Yeah. E even people that have good intentions personally, but are still programmed into believing in science and become scientists, whatever good work they do is definitely negated by the, the, the structure of science within which they are forced and accept their working life. Yeah, that that is really well said, and I think that is what exactly what Spensky's trying to say. They it is. It. It's, I, I I believe that that yeah. is exactly what this chapter is about at the start. Yeah, if they admit they know nothing, they've got a better chance of understanding more than they ever will because they'll start mm. doing things differently and looking at things differently, and and understanding that you know you can go down a path that's you know many years long, and then come to the end and go, ah, put my ladder up against the wrong wall there. You know, and start again. You've, that, that's, that's if you ever have you ever had a, a negative emotional feeling, taken the aroma of an essential oil, and felt that that feeling change immediately. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. And so have so have millions of people around the world. Science can't explain that in a million years, and they would call it hokey delusional nonsense. Um, I'm going to tell you that it's not. And that millions of people will testify that there there are benefits, health benefits. Science will never be able to investigate that idea of mood changing because it doesn't even know how to measure mood, and it won't even look at that because it's not a three dimensional thing that it can do. Psychology doesn't even do it. It does it. It will talk about it, but it doesn't do anything. Uh, it tries to investigate it, but it's invested. Psychology is in the, the poorest position of, of all the investigative, let's call it a science, because it's forced to use this platform of positivism to investigate what's clearly subjective. Yeah. I, well, I, I, well, I, can't, yeah. 
I cannot, but you know, when they're when they're trying to work with emotions, there is no positivistic platform that can give them anything, and there is there is very little methodology that can give them um, a universal solution to anything. Yeah, I, I, you know, I I despair of it, but it, you know, it does have great place, and it does do it does clinical psychology does help a lot of people. But the scientific aspect of it, it's like it's floundering. It's really swimming against a really powerful tide. And if it stopped and if it went with the flow uh, of subjectivity and the inner life of humans and other creatures and, and, and of the universe itself, then I think it would make giant progress very quickly. But it won't and it can't. To be taken seriously... It has to work within the confines of that structure. Move out of that structure and, the and it won't be taken seriously. There's the point. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, Spensky himself was struggling with this. You know, we, know, we noted that he, he needed to put this, this information framed around some mathematical kind of model so that he was taken seriously. Hang on. I, I agree with that because I, I, I railed against that in the early chapters. You did. But do, yeah. you not, do you not feel that it's almost like he's loosened the shackles? By the time we get to this chapter, it's like, oh, oh, stuff that. I don't need, I don't need to bloody hang, hang my hat on the, on any model. I'm going to tell it. I'm going to say it from what I've experienced and what I know. And, yeah, and, here and he goes. that's when the book really got into its strides. It, I mean, it comes I, I found alive. the other stuff interesting, but this is the this is the the gutsy stuff yeah. that we really you know get out of the book. And you know, I didn't find it all that interesting. That. <laughs> previous stuff. Oh well, I, yeah, I do. It, I your perception, you, did, you all, mean? Your perception and my perception I, were different. <laughs> I do, and we were reading the same book. Um, yeah. Well, that you know, and, and that isn't that the beauty of it, isn't? Doesn't that, that itself beauty, demonstrate yeah. where we come to in this chapter? Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's, it's awesome. So uh, we're going to leave it there and come back to all of that in the next uh, next part of this conversation. So you know, thanks very much, Pete, for for this and for hey, chatting no. again this week. <laughs> it's been brilliant. I mean, see, we're we're on the part now where it's fantastic, and I I. I, I love what Ospensky says in this chapter, this chapter 19. I, I agree with everything. What he's actually getting over in this chapter, I think, is vital. I think it's critical and vital for us to understand. Even to actually live in the 3D world, in the materialistic, positivistic world, you have to understand that science is not God. And the way that science is set up right now is actually not doing any of us any favours, not even in the material world, when it sets itself up to be the God against all which all things have to be judged. And if it doesn't pass the test of science, then no, you're an idiot. Um, no, I think Spensky is great at, at, at pulling down that fake foundation, those feet of clay. Loving, I'm loving this chapter. Yeah, look, I'm 100% with you there, Pete. I'm, I am too. And I think, yeah, he's he's got a bit repetitious because I think he's really mm -hmm. trying to make sure we don't miss the point. But we got it. Yeah, we got it. But, but on, <laughs> honestly, Mister Uspensky, we're not we're not as stupid as you might think. We did get it, <laughs> even though I'm a simple woman, <laughs> and I'm little more than a savage. <laughs> and the four year old child will find one. <laughs> 
Uh, okay, I'll get one. This is bad while walking down the street sooner or later. Yeah. I'm going to stick a microphone under its mouth and say, What, what, what do, do you, you think? think? <laughs> what do you think? So, oh, look at that dog! <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, look forward to seeing you next week. And um, Yeah, it'll be fantastic. I can't wait. And me neither. And thanks, everyone else, for listening. <laughs>